Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 14 Elrig Gillespie found himself in a small vestibule, strung with coats and hats and scarves, and littered with sticks and boots and frisbees, shrimping nets, fishing rods, reels and bags. An all-pervading odour of dry mud and wet dog lingered in the air. Long dead deer stared down from the wall, some mournfully, others inquiringly, their shiny glass eyes at odds with their moth-ravaged fur. This way, this way, Nin cheerfully led them on. Once their coats and boots had been added to the pile, they tumbled through a glazed door and out into an unexpectedly modern white hallway. Welcome to Elrig, Nin said, arms spread almost as wide as his smile. Make yourself at home, and I'll see if Charlie's about. Hopefully I can rustle up some of his home baking. His drop scones are the best, by the way. Nin then stage whispered to Gillespie behind a conspiratorial hand. Now would you rather tea or coffee or something stronger? Kirsty opted for tea and Gillespie followed her lead, more out of politeness than because he wanted it. Nin bustled out to the kitchen, waving them through to the sitting room on the way. Like the hallway, the sitting room was a modern room. Gillespie wasn't sure why he was surprised, but somehow given the exterior... He'd expected it to be all dingy dark colours with plenty of tartan. The white walls held some striking modern prints, very much in the style of late Matisse. And over the fireplace was a Soviet realist painting of two young men in military uniforms standing side by side in front of a billowing Soviet flag. They both clutched machine guns with very large drum magazines. While one looked down demurely, the other's gaze was fixed purposefully on the horizon. A large L-shaped oatmeal sofa was drawn up in front of the fire, with a red and green geometric carpet laid under a low-lying coffee table. This groaned under weighty terms dedicated to subjects like The Life and Loves of Vasily Kandinsky and Shields of the Pacific. Kirsty flopped on the sofa, immediately kicking off her shoes and ranging her legs across its arm. Meanwhile, Gillespie continued to look around the room, admiring a pair of Eames chairs grouped by the window as if to enjoy the view. The inevitable flat-screen TV took up much of one corner, at odds with the variety of ancient weaponry that were artfully arranged on the wall behind it. The stripped floorboards were a mellow yellowish-grey, giving the room a warm feel. He noted, admiringly, that they ran the full width of the room and were tightly fitted, a skilled job worthy of a Shoreditch studio. At that moment, Nin came through the door carrying a laden tray, his spiky black hair just fitting under the lintel. Following right behind him was another man of average height and short-cropped hair. He had unusually smooth and fine skin that positively glowed with health. This was contrasted with a rough hue and nose that had clearly sustained a break or three, and slightly protruding ears that were only accentuated by his shorn hair. His greeny brown eyes were soft and friendly, and he strode across the room to shake Gillespie by the hand. Hello, hello, look at what Nin has dragged in, he exclaimed, pumping Gillespie's hand warmly. He's told me a lot about you, but not how good-looking you were, cheeky wanker that he is. 
He cast an amused glance over his shoulder at a protesting nin. My name is Charles. Charles Farquharson. But please call me Charlie. Like the king, he said, barely suppressing a good giggle. Time seemed to accelerate over tea and scones as they spraffed and laughed. Kirsty, Nin and Charlie all trying to out-gossip each other, giving Gillespie the download they felt he needed about the reality of the clan and the Republic. It was so warm and convivial that it wasn't long before Gillespie felt his eyelids drooping, the long, stressful journey and lack of sleep weighing them down. As he battled to follow the conversation and keep his eyes open, Kirsty suddenly turned to the now-dark window and clapped her hand to her forehead. Shit, I was supposed to be walking Gillespie to the two stags to book him in for his stay. We're never going to get there now. Charlie glanced at Nin and then at Kirsty. We'd be very happy to put him up here. We've plenty of space. Turning to Gillespie, he continued. Well, how about it? Much more fun to stay with us than at that boring inn. Two stags, my arse, more like two donkeys. Our food is better and our beds are warmer. Not to mention we have cotton sheets. None of that nylon and polyester shite Jon Hovel will give you. Gillespie was in no shape to argue, and with a wave of tiredness sweeping over him, he simply relinquished his grip on wakefulness and slipped under its costing tide. Chapter 15. Kolya. John Lamont knew he had to tread carefully. Even for one as powerful and feared as he, there are moments when caution and cunning come to the fore. But despite the risk, or maybe because of it, he loved these moments. Like the alpinist reaching for new thrills, ever higher, no ropes, no oxygen, he performed his best when under the greatest pressure. Following his call with McAllen Moore, he immediately summoned Alan Stewart and swiftly briefed him on the unfolding plan. Next, he messaged the heliport, alerting Fraser Murrow to prepare his aircraft to fly to Oban. Finally, thrusting the necessary papers, change of clothes and toiletries into his bag, he left his office and carefully locked the door behind him. Stepping smartly through the castle, he had arrived at the heliport just as Fraser had finished securing clearance from the air traffic control at Spian Bridge. Without further ado, the helicopter was towed out of its hangar and prepared for immediate departure. The short flight to Oban was mostly spent peering at the terrain below, particularly when they passed over the head of Loch Fyne. In fact, he made Fraser circle Ben Buya twice before he was sufficiently satisfied to continue his onward journey. As they approached Oban, they flew over the real tests on the hill above the city. It's Bunor granite arcades encompassing the two great chambers from which the Republic was ruled. The Shena, or Senate, was the elected chamber, populated with perfectly normal elected representatives who were focused on the day-to-day -day administration and getting things done. The other chamber was the Kolya, the unelected, unrepresentative, unruly and arcane face of the Gallic Republic, the Council of Chiefs. This was where he was heading. Ever since he had first attended the Collier as a boy, he had hated it. As far as he was concerned, it was full of old coffin dodgers, puffed up with their sense of entitlement, languishing on laurels that were frequently several hundred years old and with little interest in or understanding of the 21st century. The protocol of centuries weighed heavily on the house, and despite the fact that the ancient house of Lament was as established as any, he somehow was always made to feel like the new boy, the Aravist. Lament walked briskly through the corridors of the Realtus, passing endless portraits of former members dead and buried. Many were dressed in tartan, ranging from demure to outrageous. 
He shuddered as he passed their gilt frames, feeling the weight of their disapproving sneers. The sooner this lot could be put on a bonfire, the better, as far as he was concerned. The cockades and bonnets and jabots and doublets belonged to another time, another place. The Republic's infantile adulation of the past, its ancestor worship and obsession with history and tradition was, in his view, totally inappropriate in 21st century Europe. Lamont had long promised himself he was going to abolish this anachronism forever. But that was only the beginning. He also needed to change the mentality of this benighted people, yoked to the traditions of the past. It was time for the dregs of its feudal past, the violence, the cannon, the clothes and the language, to be consigned to the dustbin of history. They were a barrier to communication with the world, to trade and modernism. To forge a new nation, they needed to throw off the mental shackles of the past. English was the world's lingua franca, and he would make it the Republic's too. But to do that, he had to play on the mutual enmity and rivalry of the other magnates, to keep them occupied and their eyes off the main game. Stopping at the first available mirror, he smoothed down his ruffled hair and adjusted his great kilt. Traditional garb was required when addressing the Collier, another black mark against it as far as he was concerned. His forefathers had never had to get out of a helicopter in such ridiculous apparel. Plus, the heating was always on too high in the chamber for such a warm garment, designed as it was to keep you alive on the hill with not much besides. Sure enough, as he entered through the high double doors into the chamber, he could see a good few chiefs were already snoozing, chins on their chests, spittle pooling on their collars. God, how he hated them. Bowing to the chamber and receiving a few nodded acknowledgements from those who were still awake, he shuggled along the front bench to his seat, on the right of the Lorica, or Speaker of the House, who was sat in his grand but rather uncomfortable-looking eagle-backed throne. Lamont always rather admired the bird, depicted rousant, with its wings poised to take flight, its talons gouging into the chair's back. It had been a gift from the last King of Montenegro, and was finely carved in pale Mediterranean olive wood, an exotic touch in the otherwise dark and dull oak-furnished chamber. He'd often thought that Ross Urquhart, the speaker, looked like a babe about to be carried off, dwarfed as he was by the eagle's spreading wings. Briefly, he turned his attention to the debate. He clocked at some islander. Was it McPhee? Was drowning on about fishnet sizes and the need for alignment with the European Union directives or some such dull matter. And so he used the time to look around the chamber to see who else was in that day. Across the aisle, he saw McLean of Dewitt, was following the debate closely. Immediately to her right was Murdoch Clan Ranald, a cutthroat of renown, not otherwise known for his interest in the fisheries. Behind them were a few empty spaces, but McKinnon of Strath and McNeil of Barra could just be spotted sharing a joke on McKinnon's phone. Highly irregular, he made a mental note to submit a complaint to the Master at Arms. Still further back, he could see McKeon of Ardnamurkin and MacDonald of Noydet. No sign of MacDonald and MacDonald, the Warden of the Isles, or the ghastly Keppoch. Thank goodness for that, at least. A reasonable turnout, though, from the West. Looking down the chamber, he caught the eye of Seaforth, the Warden of the North, and his coterie. All sat hugger-mugger. Seaforth nodded acknowledgement, and Lamont tipped his head in response. Moving on to his own side of the aisle, there was Gordon, the Warden of the East, 
his corpulent frame swagged and swathed in tartan, with Grant and Graham, the G-unit, as he liked to call them, sat on either side. To complete the northeastern alliterative set, Forbes, Farquharson and Ferguson were sat on the bench behind, but no Fraser. Finally, behind him, he had Athol Drummond and Mingy's. He was alone on the front bench, McCallum Moore's space lying unfilled. So at least no Cameron or McLeod. That was good, and he turned his mind to the job in hand. Signalling to Urquhart that he wanted to speak next, he patiently bided his time, until McPhee, for it was she, ran out of things to say about coddling sizes and sat down. The speaker called his name and he rose to address the chamber. My lords, ladies, he started, determined to put them in a good mood with a little politeness. I have come with shocking news of an incident in the Irish Sea last night in which a Republic ship attacked and all but destroyed a Kingdom patrol boat in an unprovoked attack. Three Kingdom servicemen tragically lost their lives in this cowardly incident. He paused for effect and let the words sink in. I have been called by the First Minister of Scotland who has conveyed in the strongest possible terms the displeasure of His Majesty's Government. The Republic has been threatened with sanctions both against individuals many of whom are in this room, and against the nation if we do not find and punish those responsible. First Minister Balfour conveyed in no uncertain terms the British Prime Minister's anger and frustration that these attacks could be perpetrated for such a close neighbour, and with one with whom, whatever our past differences, she is keen to build a fresh relationship. For too long we have enjoyed tweaking the tail of our neighbour, but this time the lion is stirring. Rubbish, said a voice. Lament froze, blood pounding in his ears, bile rising in his throat. Urquhart scrambled to his feet to calm the chamber as it erupted in shouts and arm-waving. Glowering, he turned to Catrona Maclean of Duart, for it had been her utterance, and purple-faced he demanded, My lady, can you please retract or rephrase your interjection? Maclean turned towards Lament, tucking her mane of red hair behind her right ear and fixing him with those cool grey eyes. She repeated, Rubbish. John, you've spent far too long with your nose so far up the First Minister's posterior you can't see the wood for the trees. We have never and will never punish our citizens just to please the kingdom. This house is not accountable to the First Minister, but to our people. Whatever happened last night, we are not at the beck and call of Balfour, or the Prime Minister of the Kingdom of Great Britain for that matter. Urquhart, whose apoplectic visage looked fit to burst, stood up, and although unable to speak due to rage, gesticulated at Maclean, ordering her from the chamber. As she took her leave, she bowed obsequiously to the speaker and flicked her hair dismissively at Lament before sweeping out. Lament did not fluster easy, but the fury that boiled inside him threatened to make him do something foolish. Very slowly and calmly he focused on containing it, and pushing it out of his mind. He returned to his feet to continue his address. Apologies, my lords and ladies, for that interruption. However, we need to take action. We need to show the kingdom that we can be relied upon to maintain the peace. And above all, we do not want to allow the kingdom to try and settle its own scores, as who knows where that will end. Therefore, I am asking the Chamber to appoint McAllen Moore, the Warden of the West and Colonel of the Black Watch, to a commission to find the perpetrators and to bring them before this house for justice to be dispensed. With a final flourish, he bowed low and sat down to await the response. 
His face was impassive apart from the slight flush of colour and the twitching of the vein on his forehead, the one that meandered its way from right-hand hairline to eye socket. For those that knew him well, that was not a sight to be welcomed, as it generally presaged a bloody and unrelenting retribution. Sometime later, after the votes had been counted and written into the Great Book of State, he left the chamber, accepting congratulations from some of the usual brown noses on the way out. He was relieved. He had McCallan Moore's commission in his hand and could now put the first part of his plan into action. He would deal with that bitch, McLean, soon enough, and that was something he was looking forward to. Chapter 16 The Breakfast of Champions Gillespie woke with a start. The room was completely black. He rummaged and fumbled for the light switch before realising it wasn't where he expected it to be. He wasn't in bed at home. It hadn't been a dream. In a panic, he reached for the wall and, having found it, edged very carefully along, trying not to bump into anything. Feeling a door jam, he felt up and down for a switch without success. Trying the other side, he finally located the elusive square of plastic. He flicked a switch, banishing the darkness. Aside from the bed, there was a colourful rag rug on the floor, its many colours cheering up what was otherwise rather an austere room. Bare floorboards and white walls made it cool, not cosy. And the prints that decorated it all were grey-green monotypes. He looked at his watch. 7.30am. Shit, he'd slept for at least 14 hours. The very thought made him feel hungry. Wrapping himself in a towel, he opened the door to find a bathroom. A long corridor stretched away from him under the slope of the eaves. It was pierced with an occasional window and a deep red Ottoman carpet leading him onwards over its lozenges and paisleys. Having tried a few doors and found more bedrooms, his hand was just reaching for the next brass doorknob when the door swung inwards, revealing Charlie wrapped in a towel, leaving the bathroom in a cloud of steam. Looking him over, Gillespie observed that he had the hard, carved physique earned through heavy work rather than hours at a gym. The alabaster white of his skin was traced with pale blue veins, and on the tricep of his right shoulder was the tattoo of a lion rampant emerging from a wreath and holding a sword in its right paw. It was the same spot that Gillespie had seen the rat cut the black tower from Malcolm. Good morning, Charlie tootled. Slept well, I hope. Breakfast downstairs in five if you're hungry. Charlie suddenly stopped and with a confused look pointed his finger at Gillespie's right-hand shoulder. How come you don't carry the mark of the Black Tower? His finger circled the top of Gillespie's arm that was as pale and white as the rest of him. Dunno, it's just not something that we do in Ireland. We don't have the same need to brand ourselves like so much cattle as you real gales over this side of the water. Gillespie's attempt at humour slightly backfired, the words coming out more harshly than he meant. Wow, that is surprising. Well, maybe tomorrow we can put that right and take you down to Tavish's tattoo parlour and get you a permanent memento of your visit. With that, he disappeared down the carpet with a hum on his lips, leaving a trail of damp footprints behind him. Gillespie spent a long time in the shower, as if he could wash away all the aches and sprains from the previous day. It felt like even his bruises had bruises, but the hot water helped. Wrapped again in his towel, he padded back to his room to get dressed. On his bed he found a pile of clothes, including a faded and slightly moth-eaten McNaughton kilt and the necessary accoutrements. A note from Charlie on top read, I dug this out of the back of Nin's wardrobe. You are thinner than he is nowadays, so it should fit, more or less. 
It's important for you to blend in if we're to go into town. He'd signed off at the bottom with a smiley face and a multitude of exclamation marks. Leaving the room, Gillespie dutifully flicked the switch and pulled the door to. The sound of the radio and the smell of frying bacon drew him like an invisible thread through the house towards the kitchen. Nin and Charlie were both already there. Nin was nursing a coffee at the table looking at something on his tablet, while Charlie was hard at work over the stove. Gesturing to Gillespie to pull up a chair, he mounted a plate with sausages, crispy bacon, slightly runny scrambled eggs and sloppy baked beans. Nin looked up from the screen, nodded in his direction and pushed a cup across. Wordlessly, he pointed at the teapot and cafetiere that stood on a cast-iron trivet in the middle of the table. Gillespie wasn't sure when he'd felt so hungry. Apart from those few drop scones the previous afternoon, he'd only really eaten a ham and cheese roll since being dragged from his house. He demolished the plate in front of him, not pausing for breath until the last fork of egg swirled with tomato sauce had been dispatched. Feeling much improved, he concentrated on his coffee. Charlie sat at the fire end of the table, observing Gillespie's ravenous dispatch to the plate with amusement. No one had yet said a word. What happens now? Gillespie asked, looking from one to another. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm truly appreciative of your hospitality, and that was, he nodded at Charlie, an exceptional breakfast. But I really should be getting back home. Apart from anything else, I have a farm to run. Nin lifted those absorbing blue eyes from the screen and peered thoughtfully at Gillespie. I know, I know, it's hard. But much though I'd like to give you an answer, I don't have one. You saw Duncan yesterday. He could pass today. Maybe he even died in the night. Whatever, it can't be long now. The choosing will happen straight after, at which point you'll be free to go. What if I get selected? Gillespie asked. What then? Can I still leave? It won't happen, Charlie said. No disrespect to you and your many doubtless wonderful qualities, but no one knows who you are. You've made no contribution to the clan, you have not served in the independent company, and you haven't even worked in the gaming operation. The risk would be too great. The clan are pretty smart about these things. Gillespie turned on his phone. He wondered if he even had roaming rights in the Republic. The first network that flashed up was Antura Du, the Black Tower, clearly the clan's provider. He had four bars, so he excused himself while he went and sent some emails to Eamon and Kate at farm, making his excuses for the next few days. Luckily, there wasn't much to do, and they were more than capable of holding the fort. In any case, what other choice did he have? Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production.